no system of government, no economic system, no currency, and no empire lasts forever. Yet almost everyone is surprised and ruined when they fail. Boom. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Wiser Day Yesi podcast. The first beautiful voice you heard was my good friend and co-host, Sam Harris. My name is Nico Vreke, and today Sam and I are discussing principles for dealing with the changing world order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, authored by Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates, that is the world's largest hedge fund. Sam, can you give us a brief summary of the book to start? Sure. So... Ray Dalio has studied the markets of the world over history, mainly for learning how to be a better investor himself, as he runs a major investing hedge fund. And he really wanted to understand why major changes and cycles happen and how to predict them. He noticed that there's a real confluence of political and economic conditions that lead up to a decline of a major world currency. And these include huge debts, zero or near zero interest rates, and that leads to a massive printing of money in the world's previous three major reserve currencies. And he's saying this is what's going to be happening now with the US dollar. And then big political and social conflicts within the countries, such as the US now, due to large wealth, political and value gaps and disparities. He reckons that this is larger than it's been in the previous 100 years, and that the rising of the current world power, China, to challenge the existing power, the US, could disrupt the current existing world order. And the last time that this confluence of major change forces occurred was between 1930 and 1945, when the world dropped the pound in favor of the US dollar. This realization sent Dalio to search for like repeating patterns over history and find cause-effect relationships, which basically explained why all the major changes in the wealth and power over the last 500 years happened. And in the book, he talks about the big cycle, which has driven the successes and failures of the world's major current trees throughout history, and he mainly discusses just the last three cycles of the Dutch Gilder, then the British Pound, and the US Dollar. It's a very timely book. It was written four or five years ago, and suddenly people are like, oh, he's totally right. (laughs) Oh, God. Published. But yeah, I didn't hear so much about it a few years ago, and suddenly I'm hearing about it from all directions, and people are like, you have to read this book. (laughs) It explains everything. This sudden popularity feels like it was related to the collapses of the banks in the US? Yeah, I think the bank collapse suddenly was just like a one extra notch on the sort of list of where we're at with things, as in everything that you spoke about before had already happened, so it's kind of easy to write books about things that have already happened, but then when things start happening in the future, after you've written the book, I think it gets more confirmation, so perhaps that's part of it. But yeah, the bank collapse was certainly one of the major triggers of people start talking about like, why are these things happening? And like, oh, there's a book that already explains why these things are all happening. Oh, and it explains things that are going to happen next. It seems pretty accurate. And most people that I speak to are usually pretty rational. They're like, yeah, you said a lot of really good things. Whereas, I don't know, Balaji, if you're into that whole banking collapse, was saying lots of stuff that people aren't necessarily agreeing with quite so much. But right now, people are a bit more like, yeah, should probably listen to what he says. He's a very reasonable man, very data-driven. He also wrote a book called Principles, in which he outlines like the way he works in his company. Have you read it? Sam? Yeah, I found it a bit boring. It was a big book. I agree, the book is boring. I don't even think I got through the whole yeah. thing. But I do remember that they work with like meritocracy in the extreme. Mm. 
and very, very data-driven. And so essentially it means that every time you give an opinion, your opinion is discounted by whether you were right about this specific area or this topic in the past or not. Mm. And if you give an opinion, that gets tracked. And whether your opinion or prediction becomes reality, you know, adds or subtracts from how much people weigh your thinking and your thoughts about certain matters. Interesting. And but I do remember him also saying, like, they don't necessarily judge where opinion comes from. And he's just happy to hear, like, opinions of people that are, like, new that you would necessarily be right on a new topic. <laughs> just to completely, like, the other things. But yes. Yeah. In- Thank you for completely destroying yeah. my process. <laughs> this is the guy that, has, that read even less of the book than you did. <laughs> I swear I've heard him say, say things like... I'm sure there's a way to have these ideas work together in one frame. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think what definitely came up was he just really seeks the truth rather than like any opinionated of things as in he's very happy to be completely wrong, yeah. which is the same point from your side or from my side. The reason he makes so, any of this decision. Okay, so to, to get back to the book, there's this old saying, and in my head it comes from the Romans, but it could be completely wrong, and it is that strong men make for good times, good times make for weak men, weak men make for bad times, and bad times make for strong men. And that's a cycle, and that for me is essentially like this whole book summarized in one. And I think we've discussed you know, this particular cycle quite a bit in the past. I yeah. I feel like we've touched upon it. Like the strong men, weak men cycle. Personally, I'm not sure I would say it quite describes the whole book. As a timeline, it's like one generation does kind of fit the general timelines of the big cycle. And importantly, because he sort of says it's like a hundred years for a cycle, give or take like 50 years in either direction. It's long enough for everyone to have forgotten that a cycle happened just like this before. And to always be completely surprised because any time a change happens, it's always the first time it's happened in anyone's lifetime that's around, basically, to the point where like it's always like the holy shit moment of your life and you're not expecting it. It certainly is like a very big underlying factor, but also just the general methods of making money and reliance on different things over time shift and how you get into more debt, which is part of being soft and just expecting problems to like sort themselves out. So maybe I'm being a bit critical. <laughs> Perhaps you're completely right. Really. This book made me maybe think a lot about Nassim Taleb's points, and especially what you just mentioned, right? The fact that we as humans tend not to look back enough to see the whole picture. Yeah. And we don't realize that some things that are happening are happening in cycles that are multi-generational. Being someone that got fairly convinced by the principles behind Bitcoin quite early, maybe we discussed these things when we discussed uh, the Bitcoin standard yeah. book as well. There's many modern monetary theorists who essentially say that inflation is okay as long as you can print as much money as you want, as long as it keeps up with productivity growth. And so a lot of these are like essentially looking at the moment we got off the gold standard, which was 1971 in August, I believe, where I believe that was President Nixon. And Ray Dalio mentioned this in the book as well, said that you can no longer exchange the dollar for gold. And that is when we went from a hard-backed paper currency which meant that you have paper, but that paper represented a certain amount of hard assets or hard currency, which is gold. Yeah. And we went from that to a fiat currency, which you can no longer exchange the paper for the hard assets, but the paper is purely backed by fiat, which is, I declare, I think, that the, the literal translation from Latin is, which is it's essentially backed by the, I guess, the power 
and productivity of the U.S. government and USA as a whole. My point was that I tend to talk to a lot of investors, short-term, long-term investors, and I feel like the data that many investors base themselves on is like data over the last 20 years, 40 years, at best, maybe the last 80 years since yeah, World War II. Definitely, isn't it? Not realizing that there's actually way more data. And it's so interesting that, to me at least, before reading this book, you know, what happened in the Netherlands? Yeah, um, I had no idea, really. As in, as far as my only real knowledge of Netherlands and economics was like the tulip book craze. <laughs> and that's about all I heard of. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't even know that the Netherlands was such a big world power at all. I had like some sense of it from just traveling around Asia and seeing how many colonies used to be Dutch. I was like, wow, <laughs> I didn't realize this. I had no idea. Whereas like Britain, obviously, is very obvious to me because I'm from Britain. So I knew how big we were. And so, you know, in the book, Ray Dalio makes a point of going through the last 500 years of cycles, analyzes the Dutch first, because those rose to power in like the 17th century, which I still think, I think both the Dutch and the British are like, I found them relatively surprising because in general, a core pillar of any world's power is economic outputs mm. and productivity. And especially 200 years ago, when there was still limited a limited amount of technology, like I see technology as a leverage on individual talents. If you have X talents and I have Y talents, the difference given technology will only increase. And so as technology progresses, if you're more talented than I am, your productivity will increase exp exponentially. Yeah. And so that's why I was surprised that both the Dutch and the English had a tiny amount of people. Yeah, yeah. Back in the days that they were so successful. And I guess at that point, maybe the difference or the reason why they were so strong was because there was less the dispersion of technology where, you know, they knew how to build certain types of ships, which were faster, stronger, could transport. Yeah, more. maybe that would a technology, more slaves. Like some of the other things he talks about, it's just like education and political unrest and like security in your nation. And less other like conflicts against you, pulling you down. And like, while well, the Dutch sort of innovated like the banking system that allowed people to invest in things that didn't yet exist in ways that hadn't really been done before. So it really allowed mm. them sudden leverage in terms of the way they like facilitated credit in their economy. So this is something that I just feel he didn't talk about in the book, which I wrote about on my own blog a few weeks ago of why the other reason why it would be obvious for China next is that like you look at the Dutch and like they're 10% the size of Britain but like with the, way, the world order because they just had the best technology and like and systems and were able to go around because everyone else was just faced by other problems but then like as soon as Britain copied the Dutch enough and like there were some problems with the Dutch in terms of they had like issues with like political stuff and their debt reliance like it's just obvious that Britain would do better than the Dutch because it's 10 times bigger and they're copying all their ships and they're doing these things. And then like America, you know, was still pretty new, had their civil wars and like there are other things they are still sorting themselves out. And it's not until like the 1940s, 1930s that actually they have the civil unrest and are in a place of security and have copied all of England's technology to be at a level where they're actually like beating them and like they're all educated to the same similar level. And then it's just obvious that America, 10 times bigger than Britain, is going to be the world power. Why the hell is Britain the world power? It just seems completely bonkers. And then now, China, 1.4 billion people, or 
one for either way <laughs> like a hell of a lot more people than the us and actually we like the britain kept china britain and like france and a few of the other nations that were really supplying china with opium which should have led to like the 100 years of just being a bit of a fail as a nation which we don't really learn about that much but pretty oppressive as a thing to be doing and yeah then they had all the communism stuff that like didn't work brilliantly for them <laughs> in the 20th century but now like they are very much not a backwards behind nation which pretty obvious now that the they are really well educated and they have had harder times before. So they're still kind of hard people. Like they actually really care about doing super well in their jobs and working hard. Whereas we're all pretty soft, like as our generations now of like easy times. And there's like a hell of a lot more of them and they're working really hard and they have the same technology and probably better education than the US. And it's pretty obvious that a country five times bigger working harder is going to do better in terms of economic output and all these things, at which point they're going to become the major world power in terms of a currency and everything, really. <laughs> and he doesn't talk about this part much in terms of just populations and matches, because this isn't a good argument for Bitcoin, as in where does it go next if we just keep on leveling up in terms of population? The only place for a world currency to go next is the whole world after China, because it's already the biggest nation. Sort of a tangent, but very related. I'd be happy to touch upon Bitcoin a bit later as well, just for the touch upon some of the points you made, particularly around the economic cycle and debt and how important like the world economy is. And essentially like without productivity, you cannot become a world power. And especially like here in Europe, as you mentioned, younger generations are like, why are we always so focused on growth? And why do we always want to be more and be more productive and have more? And I would say that this book makes a relatively good case for allowing ourselves to be focused on growth and productivity. Because the moment you stop being focused on growth and productivity and the moment you fall behind, you're no longer a world order, which means that you become at the mercy of countries who at that point are then the world order. And so let's take a fairly easy example or like a more digestible example or a less controversial example. Let's say that in a world where Russia is actually what China is doing today, I guess many of us would not be very happy if we were ruled or if we were living in a Russia-dominated world war. You need to realize that if you were saying that we don't always need growth and we we don't always need productivity and we don't need to work so hard, at that point, you are essentially saying that you're okay with being ruled or living in a world that's dominated by another world order, which might not align fully with your values. It always frustrates me how so many people in first world countries have just become lazy and complacent and unwilling to work hard and just don't realize that, like, how good we have it, essentially. We're definitely always critical of things and don't really notice, like, all the good stuff we have. One of the things that also frustrates me, I get frustrated a lot, as you can probably hear, especially in Europe, we pride ourselves around you know, free education and a well-functioning healthcare system especially compared to the United States. So I think that specifically the healthcare system in the US is screwed up, right? I would yeah. call it the fold of unbridled capitalism. Mistakes were made. What I disagree with is that we're doing things so well in, in Europe, we have it all figured out. Because we're essentially living on borrowed time almost. We are running a deficit, which means that our expenses are higher than our incomes. That's the reason why we still have so much luxury and are able to provide free healthcare and always free education. Sam, I'm pretty sure you can agree that the NHS, the, I think, National Health Service in the UK 
is not functioning very well right now. It has lots of things to improve. I don't bash it as much as most people in terms of every important thing I've needed or my family. It's always been there and been useful and accessible. And it's pretty amazing in that sense. So like, like you're just saying of people complaining too much about stuff when we have things really good. I'm definitely like, a, hey, it's actually not that bad. It's pretty good. Yes, it could be way more efficient. Yes, it could cure more with less money and people could be happier. But it is pretty good. I still agree with what you're saying before. I just felt like having a counter argument. And I definitely agree with what you're saying currently of like, yeah, we are living on borrowed time and giving ourselves a full sense of security and safety by like printing money and giving ourselves stuff that we haven't worked out how to afford yet. It doesn't take too many things. So like COVID knocked us a bit more into like, oh, we had to print a bit more money and do some things that we couldn't really pay for directly. And then it only has like a few more things that sort of sap you to suddenly like, tip you over the threshold of actually shit we can't pay we owe too many people different money and no one really wants to like back us anymore and things kind of all fall due at the time and so many things <laughs> going on and certainly things like the ukraine wars obviously added to inflation and costs of things and then also whether britain or the us trying to like help support ukraine with money and things it is sort of a bit of a financial war as well that russians sort of doing and that's certainly what he talks about with like general power and if you are like the world's major power for too long you start to have more of these things your tentacles start to like all come back at you with problems anyway i'm not i feel like we could reset a bit of where we're going with direction here i'll save you sam oh thank god <laughs> so the book identifies three key forces that influence how the world's from a high level is governed and run and influence world borders the first is a long-term debt cycle the second one is wealth and power disparities, specifically internal wealth and power discrepancies in countries, and then the rise and fall of empires. And so the three of those are all related. And so let's quickly try and touch upon the debt cycle, because as we already mentioned, you know, whether a country is powerful is extremely strongly linked to their economies, their productivity. And I'm going to be honest, like I still don't fully understand the whole long-term debt cycle, printing of money and all of the influences that it has on world power, et cetera. There's quite a lot of time spent in the book on like economy and currencies. And I understand the high level, but I feel like Ray Dalio has like this model in his head about how the world works and reducing interest rates, what the long-term effects of those things could be. I'm going to need some time and some more like, I guess, life experience in the markets to finally like fully understand the economic machine that he talks about. There is a great YouTube video called How the Economy Works or How the Economic Machine Works by Ray Dalio. It's mm. like 30 minutes. It's animated. It's great. I think it gives a very solid like starting overview of some of the points that he touches upon in this book, which is like there's long-term debt cycles and then there's short-term debt cycles and business cycles. Anyway, so that's a pretty good starting point. I still haven't fully grasped it. Like if you tell me now, like, oh, if this happens to interest rates, what are the long-term effects? I couldn't answer you. But it's interesting and I'm glad to like get more information around these things to start building up all of my head. I think it's a topic no one fully, fully understands perhaps in terms of it's a bit like predicting the weather. There's always yeah some yeah. extra things that you can't sure. ever fully account for in that sense. But also at just a general level, like, it's never fully made sense to me how you can just keep on printing money from the World Bank and different things. And I just don't understand how countries stay in the level of debt and who even has this debt and where it, debt comes from and why some people have bonds and why other people don't trust bonds. And it, it all gets a bit like, but 
why, what's going, who. <laughs> Seems like just a bunch of made up terms for things that maybe do or don't work, but probably don't work. Or they work until people realize they don't work and then they don't work. Exactly. I think that's three importance. And I think, you know, why we're speaking about this today is because suddenly people feel like the dollar might not be as safe as everyone thought it was. And it's all about confidence, right? And the moment this confidence starts reducing, it's always like a, a virtuous cycle, which is essentially the point that Balaji makes. Yeah. So, you know, for those of you unaware, Balaji, ex-CTO of Coinbase, I believe, he made a million Binance. dollar bet. And so he made a bet that Bitcoin will be worth $1 million in like three months, which is now still only two months or even less. So extreme bets. But his point is that we're moving towards the detailization, especially starting with the bank collapses of Silicon Valley Bank, First Bank. These events that happens, the US governments and Federal Reserve are going to have to print so much money that's going to reduce trust in the dollar system and it's going to start a vicious cycle that results in the dollar being worth almost nothing. It seems a bit like crazy, like that couldn't happen, which is this thing that Predalia makes. <laughs> like People always think it's crazy, it couldn't happen. But there are plenty of nations that aren't like completely stupid as a nation that have some pretty mega inflation going on at the moment, like Argentina and other places. It can happen, especially if people do start to lose confidence as well. And there's quite a few other factors that he talks about. So, well, that's the first like long-term debt cycles and things. But then like the wealth and power disparities. I feel like there's also the general point around like education and like ability in terms of like America does have issues with the education system is crazy expensive, which just puts like the people who aren't wealthy into more debt that they can't afford. And like the health system isn't great. Whereas like China, healthcare is free and their education system is, is mostly free. It definitely gives their much larger population better chances than America does, which is meant to be the land of opportunity, but actually isn't perfectly easy to navigate, especially with uh, the wealth and power disparities of, it's talked about a lot with the whole like anti-capitalism things around the rich people keep getting get richer and the poor get poorer, but it certainly has been happening over the last sort of 50 years as like <laughs> one of the great parts, things of America was the rise of the middle class and it's now kind of declining a bit as it does now become more of the lower classes grow. Basically, there is just a much bigger disparity in like earning between certain parts of society. And that just breeds a lot more distrust and hate and annoyance between people. And to the point where like, if it gets too bad, you just have massive political unrest and people trying to like break the system because the system isn't working for them. You can only push it so far and it will break, which is the more important thing. Then you have the issue where like America actually just has its own like civil war or not full on war, but like generally just can't be dealing with major things. And like America definitely has lost a lot of disrespect from the world in general with the last sort of few years of its politics. And you're just like, what the hell's going on in America? Like that's just crazy. And yeah, when you have that sort of distrust, then people are pretty open to the idea that they maybe are not going to trust the dollar for things. Also, when you've had a country that's been like softer and the world power for a long time it doesn't matter to any other country in the world whether america is the world power because americans think like oh it's so important that they must be the savior of the world and that everyone uses their dollars but like no one really cares the same with like no one cares that britain is no longer the world power it's not like anyone in the world's so like we should put britain back in, in power like <laughs> of course not and no one really cares if it's america some people might be annoyed if it ends up being china if they don't like the way that regime works but it's not like anyone's really going to try and protect america from their problems in that sense. I want to talk about one thing because, so again, the book focuses on three key forces that influence the world's order. 
long-term debt cycles, what we just discussed, wealth and power disparities, which is what Sam just touched upon and then the rise and fall of empires, which all the three of them are strongly interlinked. And so to get back on the internal wealth and power disparities, essentially what happens when a new empire comes to power is that in the beginning, things are actually fairly equal. And so if you look at the US, just post the World War, like there wasn't a lot of wealth disparities. You know, people become more productive. It's like the beginning of a cycle. People are very productive. They want to work hard. They're willing to work hard. And if I look at my grandparents, they were like willing to work way harder than me and people of my generation and certainly Gen Z years that I know. What's happening is that countries go into deficits. In initially, countries borrow to be more productive, to invest. So borrow money, invest to be more productive. And so that is a good way to borrow. At some point, people become complacent, right? We go from strong men to weak men. You start borrowing to consume instead of borrowing to invest. And once you're borrowing to consume, you're actually running like a unsustainable deficit. And at that point, to make up for all that borrowing, countries need to print more of their currencies. And we've seen that in every single big empire that has existed over the past recorded history, essentially. Once nations start to prints extra money that increases inflation. And the thing is that who benefits from inflation? People that actually have assets. So what does inflation mean? Inflation means that money is actually worth less, which means that things that you want to buy with money are worth more. And so generally things like real estate, stocks and bonds, so ownership of company or like actually like productive assets, these tend to go up. And who owns these things? That's the rich. And I think the best illustration of that is was the coronavirus pandemic. So after COVID, we had a stock market crash. And then because of very, very strong action from Federal Reserve banks that printed a lot of money, the stock prices actually started to go up again in like three, four months after the crash. We we're already at the same levels of the place in the US. And so um, that point, actually, like if you look at before COVID and after COVID, the disparities and the wealth levels of the poor and the, and the wealthy, you'll see that the disparities have increased. Yeah, I think like the number of billionaires went up by like 30% or something over COVID. Yeah. Don't quote that yeah. statistic at all. But something like that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. There's like thousands of billionaires right now. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, and that will lead to, and so the book makes the argument that at least historically and probably now as well, um, all this disparity leads to civil unrest and civil unrest leads to revolution and revolution leads to a new internal power. And new internal powers leads to less strong external power, if that makes sense. And that mostly leads to a changing world order where the country that was once in power actually loses its power because of the internal fighting going on. I have one thought there, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, Sam. The book makes a case that we've seen that in Britain, in China also. The book talks quite a bit about China's history as well, which mm-hmm. like, we never learned as, as Europeans. Yes. That observes the wealth disparity is increasing because of the cycle that we just talked about. And then before essentially saying, screw this, this system doesn't work for us. We're going to revolt and we're going to reset things, essentially. Let's touch upon one of the conclusions of the book, which is that the US is at the final stretches of its big cycle and hence also its leading world status or big, like strongest power status. And China is essentially rise. Almost all importance and metrics on power. Yeah. China's increasing, still often below the US, but increasing fast. And so it's a matter of years, maybe decades until China overtakes the US. 
And that's bad news for the current world order, specifically the US. And I don't think we're going to be much better off in Europe. Mm, yeah, the um, G7 because- does have some, like I said earlier, that like no one cares about America. But actually, like the G7 is kind of reliant on America a bit more. And there's the whole rise of BRICS currently, which is like Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But there's also like Saudi and other parts of Asia kind of potentially joining and Mexico maybe. And BRICS is currently like just about to overtake like the G7 in terms of amount of economic output. Some of them looks like they're sort of shifting to be more open to not using the dollar. Like Russia started using the Chinese paying them. Saudi has, I think South Africa did. Kenya's stopped using the dollar. So quite a lot of countries are suddenly not using Mm -hmm. it. It's just like starting to shift, starting to happen. And if it carries on growing and like obviously bricks, which make lots of stuff, they do lots of things economically that people want and need. They are actually growing. They should continue to grow. And so we do end up with a very realistic scenario of some big shifts. So given that I think it's safe to assume that we are moving towards a China first world order, seeing this happen, what can you do to hedge, take advantage of this, position yourself well for this? So not having exposure to a currency that could suffer hyperinflation. So not having lots of dollars in your bank, maybe having some Bitcoin, if you believe in Bitcoin, it's not like the price of a property in Britain is suddenly going to like lose its value as such. So like owning things that are still going to be useful, whether it's like a solid asset or companies that just make useful stuff and do it in a way that does make money and don't rely on like weird amounts of funding still seems like sensible investments. Maybe don't fully just expose yourself only to US stocks, maybe owning some more Chinese stocks. And it's not like China's never really in previous history wanted to like own that many countries, which I think has been one of the reasons why it hasn't been such a big world power in that it like has had times of economic strength and political strength and hasn't really gone to try and take over the world as a nation. And it's always been quite isolationist. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen next, but it's not like even if it's never going to suddenly try and like take over Europe and make Europe follow its politics in the same way like America didn't try and like take over China because it would have been impractical for it to do that. We're not going to have like a kind of world war in the sense of someone trying to like own the whole world. But in terms of just being able to be the one that's the power of being able to print money and the rest of the world relying on whether they print money, that can happen. But yeah, if you have wealth owning stuff that like wouldn't get eroded by a shift in whether major world currency is about as Seems like the only sensible thing. And maybe some more Bitcoin than you currently have because of you can see people that do have dollars maybe trying to like flee into that as a potential to actually make some extra money. But maybe you have some better ideas than me. Not specifically. I'm always surprised. Like listening to this book, I was like, yo, Bitcoin fixes this the whole time. Yeah. I'm thinking that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's something that solves many of the problems that gold has. Because Ray Daly was actually, and I, I watched an interview with him like a couple of days ago where he was specifically asked about Bitcoin. And so one of his things is that he's probably pretty long gold. No? Being mm. long means that he has like a high exposure to gold. He owns gold because he considers that that's like the hardest of currencies historically. Bitcoin is gold, but just strictly better. So in that interview, he was asked, so what do you think of Bitcoin? And so his two counter arguments against Bitcoin. He owns some, but the reason why he's not like super, super convinced is one, that it's still extremely volatile, mm. which is totally fair. Right. 
Bitcoin goes up and down like huge amounts very fast. And two is that it's actually like a tiny asset class. Like it's worth like a third of Microsoft, which is one company, all of Bitcoin. And so it's fair, especially if you're a billionaire, like he has the biggest hedge fund in the world, which I don't know how much it manages, but I think it's it's definitely between 10 billion and 100 billion and might be even be above 100 billion. Mm. And if you're managing that amount of money, like the moment you allocate to something, you're actually like moving the needle quite a lot, especially the total value of that asset class is still so small. And so from his perspective, I can see it. It's also Bitcoin is all Lindy, right? Or good yeah, friend to yeah, that would agree. I think Bitcoin proved itself over time to be gold, but better. But then again, like take that with a grain of salt. I'm working within the Web3 space, so I have high exposure and it's wrong. I would say that indeed, as you mentioned, don't hold long dated debt, which means that don't go buy like a government bond of 10 years because in 10 years, the money, especially US money or EU money, that euro is valued way lower, is very high. And so I would say that's don't, you know, expose yourself to long-term debt where your money's locked up. Buy productive assets, I would say. Buy real assets, like real estate, or like build exposure to those. These are things I'm thinking, by the way. These are not recommendations, obviously. In general, I would say that also think about maybe your like personal life and what you're doing in life and what is important to you. Yeah, but maybe one, one question is like, how would the knowledge in this book change your life if you read it earlier? And I can answer that question and then you can give your take. I think that I'd probably build more personal exposure to China, which means that maybe spend a year in China. Like, yeah, definitely um, like just maybe a year in university should have been in China. <laughs> it's something like that. For yeah, sure. My cousins and, and a lot of people I knew like started to learn Mandarin, but it's just really hard, right? Especially if, if you're not living there, if you're not using it, it's so hard to learn a language. But that's, I think, something that I would strongly consider looking back. Okay, I'm really glad I had spent some time there and has sort of... Just give you a lot more like awareness of things and like a place to like put stuff in your memory when you're talking about things as opposed to just like a reading is not the same as like having experiences. Yeah, well, personally, how would I change my? I think I would have invested in a bit more Bitcoin earlier. Honestly, the concepts of why Bitcoin is good would have sunken into me <laughs> more quickly when you have like the why it solves so many of those problems over like the last 500 years with economic theory stuff. Otherwise, in terms of investing, it's a bit harder or like what are actually the bigger important things in your life. Because certainly I have become a lot more aware of how easy it is for things to just like disappear or like major things to happen because of we just felt so secure of like we expect to get back exactly what we put in like kind of reliably. But like so many nations have had like wars or like things just destroy their wealth. We kind of lost touch with that as our generations. But like people that had all their money in Argentinian banks and stuff like they've lost all their money. <laughs> like they've had like double inflation per month for the past few years or something ridiculous and yeah it happens all over the world and well, there's plenty of other nations that you know, they've had wars and they've had to flee as refugees with nothing and stuff and like in the west we just think we're completely immune to that and i think just like the mindset of like how you work towards things could just be a bit different and a bit more like grateful in the moment rather than like oh i have to work until like everything's finally there otherwise also just protecting yourself from being in your one single nest of your own country one more point there, and it's a point that Daniel also makes at the end, and it is diversify. I have a few friends who are not very good at saving, and they're working essentially like a government job. And I think that that is a very risky way of living because, you know, people, like, as we said in the beginning, right, we don't have a long memory. and At best, we remember our parents' full lifetimes. And so we haven't lived through the government collapse, at least not in the West. 
I think that European governments might at some point be in, in big trouble. I'm not sure how sustainable our current social system is. Yeah. And so a lot of people I know, they're counting on getting money from the government when they retire at the age of 65. And that's a risk I'm not willing to take myself. Like I want to make sure that I'm self-sufficient at that point yeah, because definitely. there's a good chance that the euro won't exist anymore or it will be devalued. Mm. And the, the quality of life you can get from a state-sponsored pension by that point will be... Yeah, just look at France trying to like secure their pensions by like raising the pension age and everyone all kicked off and you're like, well, if they've let you <laughs> get what you want, you're not going to even get it. Like, <laughs> chill out front. Good. Maybe a final rating. Yeah, I thought it was super good. I feel like 10 too much, but I loved all of it. And I found the amount of data really nice. I used the data to tell stories. And so it was all very relatable to something that like was enjoyable to listen to. It wasn't dry at all. And you're like, You've taken everything that I already know about the world and just rearranged it a little bit in a way that I now understand the world much better. In that sense, it was great. And I'm like, shit, everyone needs to read this. What's going on? <laughs> so, um, yeah, strong nine. Awesome. So for me, I felt like there was a bit of repetitiveness. I felt like the book could have been more succinct and, and crisp and shorter. Yeah, dense. like the, his YouTube video, I think it's like 45 minutes or something on YouTube, yeah. but like, Basically says what's in there, but it is nice to get some extra depth. But yeah, I agree. He does repeat himself a little bit. I didn't personally find it like very easy to listen to. I did find myself spacing out mm. quite a bit. So yeah, but again, I think the information in the book is amazing and really important. And again, this is probably me, but it could have been packaged slightly better, maybe different, something more entertaining. Mm. I don't know. Um, and so for that reason, I'm going to give it a solid eight. Okay. That's fine. I, I think this is an important book for anyone to read, specifically the points of us in the West. Having a very short-term memory, thinking everything's fine, 50 years from now will look like today. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And I, I really didn't feel like he had any agenda of like trying to make himself look cool or like trying to like cause other people problems. I think he definitely was like, Hey, I've done this research and I think this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think people should know it. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just done to try and sell books or like cause final money. question. Yes. Would you trust Ray Dalio with your money? Would you invest in his hedge funds or put money in his hedge funds? Uh, yeah. And I think indirectly, like that way it might have not been his goal, mm. but at least like I agree with you, right? I'm like, fuck this guy, like understands the world way better than I do. Depending on his fee structure, maybe, you know, it makes sense to just trust him with at least a part of me, maybe even a significant chunk of your, you know, liquid asset. But he doesn't believe in Bitcoin, so maybe not. I'll, I'll, so I don't know. Maybe we can, we can do it. Yeah, diversify. Some. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good. All right. Thanks, Sam, for this. So next episode, Sam and I, we're currently reading The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene, which is a incredibly long book. Yeah. It's like, wait, four hours or something crazy? Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to make our life easier. Also, try to summarize this and talk about this by splitting it into words. Yeah. So there's 48 laws. If my math is correct. That divided by two is 24. So after 24 laws, we can do part one and we can do part two. Perfect. All right, Sam, thank you. Listener, thank you even more. If you enjoyed it, let us know. If you learned something, let us know. If you haven't read the book, I would do so. I think it's pretty worth it. It's a nine from Sam, eight from me. It's probably like a 17 is a pretty high average. Yeah, for this so, uh, podcast, that's high. Yeah. Good. All right. Thank you. And speak to you next episode. Ciao.